0: So I'm really excited about this sermon today for three reasons. First of all, you'll recall that in my last sermon, which was on Acts 11, uh, I brought in this passage from 1 Corinthians 1, and I talked about this guy, Apollos, from Alexandria. Well, we're going to be introduced to Apollos today. This is the first time he appears in the New Testament. So I'm kind of really excited to explore his role more thoroughly today. Secondly, um, I think this sermon's gonna fit nicely with what Harrison challenged us with last week, and I'm gonna come back to that at the end of the sermon. And I'm also excited because as I prepared for this sermon, I had to do some geography, all right? Now, considering the number of times that I have read the Bible through, I have to tell you I have still not really been sure about all the various locations, especially of the places cited in the New Testament. Now, some of you may have been like Nanette, my wife, who, when she was a child in a Baptist church in Whitakers and in Rocky Mount, had to memorize the missionary journeys of Paul. They did not do that in my Presbyterian church, okay? So I didn't know this, um, and you know, I've just kind of, honestly, for a long time, just glazed through it. So we're not going to go through all of his travels, okay? But I want to give you a little geography lesson, because I think it's going to be useful. Now I don't have a laser pointer. Or or I might have brought it. Um, But anyway, so you're going to have to walk around the map with me for a moment. Uh, Down at the bottom, you see the legend that says Paul's travels just to the right of that. You see Egypt. There are actually four countries' names on here that are still the same countries today. So we have Egypt. Now, circle up the right. That's going to be on the east. All those little towns around Jerusalem and all that, that's actually Israel. But it's not labeled as such. Above that is Syria. And remember that... um, we talk a lot about Antioch, that Antioch is in Syria. We talked about that in my last sermon. Um, they were devastated by that earthquake uh, in Turkey not long ago. Okay, keep going now to the far left, and you're going to see Italy and Rome. All right? You also see Sicily, which is um, part of Italy. And then come just to the way, east, rather, just to the right, and you see Greece. All right? So those are the four big names that you recognize now. Now, the area that's labeled Macedonia, that's above Greece, is now the southern Balkans. That's going to be the countries of Albania, North Macedonia, and Bulgaria today. And that big mass that says Asia, Lycia, Pamphylia, Phrygia, Galatia, Bithynia, that is all modern-day Turkey. And they're voting for a new, uh, a new president today. So we're going to leave the map up. Okay, I'm going to refer to it from time to time just so you can get a sense of it. I was kind of enjoyed it because I had in my mind, you know, where are all these people going and where are they from and all that. So besides geography, I also want to ground us again in what we're doing in this series, which is going through the book of Acts using the lens of witness and shalom. We're exploring the different ways in which the early church and the early church leaders witnessed first to the Jews and then to the God-fearing Greeks, and then to the secular Greeks, and eventually even the Romans. And we also have been considering the various ways that the witness occurred. And as we do that, we're considering how belief in Jesus brought new peoples into the shalom of God. Not a complete shalom, not the new heavens and the new earth, but a foretaste of that shalom that is to come in that great day. Now today, you might think, since it's called Witness Through Debate, that we're mainly looking at witness today, not so much shalom. Uh, So that's what we're going to focus on today. And from our text today, I want us to consider and understand what was it that Paul and Apollos could have been saying as they debated the Jews in the synagogue? What were they saying? And then what can we learn from understanding what they might have been saying? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithful servants uh, in the early church, uh, Paul, Apollos, others, um, for um, sharing your gospel throughout the world. Um, we pray that uh, we might understand their works on today so we, we could apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we got two sections of text today. We got verses 1 through 11 and, and then verses 24 through 28. Paul was in Athens. You heard that last week. He was in the Areopagus. He was debating the philosophers there. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why that wasn't called witnessed through debate last week too, but anyway, you know, what can we say? He now goes to Corinth. Okay, let's look up here. See Greece? You see between the words Greece and Achaia, you see Athens and Corinth. They're actually separated by a small isthmus, a word that I can barely say. You can't see it very well on this map, but they're connected by a little bit of land. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Now, this is our introduction to some other really important people in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. They uh, they show up at various times in Acts. They're often cited in the letters of Paul. And it's not clear whether he went to find them, knowing about them, or whether he just ran across them uh, by the grace of God. But Aquila is from the province of Pontus, top right. See it way over there? And they were living in Rome, top left, okay? Now, they're Jewish, but they're also believers in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We often get the idea that the entire spread of the gospel in the early decades of the church is all written in Acts, but it's not. There were other unnamed people who took the gospel out to other areas. Aquila and Priscilla were already believers in Rome, by the time they come to um, Corinth, they become believers in Rome. And so guess what happens when Jewish people become followers of Jesus? There's disruption in the synagogue, right? So there's battles and fights and uh, conflict between the, the, the Jewish converts and the uh, other Jews. And, and everywhere that happened and this conflict occurred, there was, there was trouble in the community. Well, there's one thing that Roman emperors didn't like in Rome. And that was conflict and unrest. So if you were propagating conflict and unrest, uh, you were, the best thing that could happen to you is you'd be sent out of the, the city, okay? There were lots of worse things that could happen to you. But they, were, they left because Claudius commanded both the, Jew, the Jews, both the believers and non-believers of Jesus to leave Rome. And so you know what happened in the Jerusalem persecution, didn't it? God, again, working here providentially using conflict and persecution to spread his kingdom. And for a bit, it appears that Paul was working in tent making. And he did what he's always did. He would work during the week and then he would go to the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath and try to persuade the Jews and Greeks. And we've seen this over and over again. Silas and Timothy arrived. They come from, from Macedonia, top left. So Macedonia, again, a little bit above Greece. Um, They bring a gift of money from the Macedonian churches. They don't say that in Acts, but you can read about it in 2 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4. And what does this do? This allows Paul to devote his time completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, what was the content of Paul's reasoning in the synagogue in his solemn testimony? We can't be sure because we don't have any of his discussions But he seems to be showing how Jesus was the Messiah who had been prophetically promised in the Old Testament and whom the Jews were expecting. And we're gonna go a lot more into detail about what they might've been talking about here shortly. And of course, the Jews resisted. And uh, verse six, Paul says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now he doesn't mean the God-fearing Gentiles that were also part of the synagogue. He now means the secular Gentiles. But he doesn't go very far, does he? Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Now, I chuckle every time I read this, all right? You don't like me in the synagogue? Fine, I'll just go next door, okay? And I'm going to keep saying what I've been saying. And I'm only about, you know, 10 yards away from where I was before. So if that wasn't enough of a slap in the face to the Jewish community, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, verse 8, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now imagine the Jewish community at this point, right? Paul's been telling them that they're wrong in their worship of God now that Jesus has come, died, and resurrected. Paul has told them that their condemnation is their fault. Paul has continued to preach this now from the house right next door to the synagogue. They have to walk right past that on their way to the worship every week. And now the leader of the synagogue has joined this growing church in Corinth. No wonder there was conflict, right? They must have been incredibly angry and threatening to him. But Paul doesn't stop. He never stops preaching the word despite threats and experiences of personal harm. And God is gracious and sends him a word of comfort. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And Paul remained there for another 18 months. Now, between verse 11 and verse 24, we didn't read all that, but let me briefly explain what happens during that time period so you understand a little bit about Apollos. As has happened to Jesus in the past, and has happened to Paul in the past, Paul is taken again by the Jews to a Roman authority who say, this man is disrupting our lives. This man is named Gallio. What does he do? Nothing. He says, ain't, our fault. ain't my problem. All right? So they send everybody on their way, and ultimately then Priscilla and Aquila head for Antioch. All right? So they've been over in Corinth, and they're going to head over here to that word Syria over there, Antioch of Syria. Um, and they didn't go a very direct route. Okay, so they ended up in Ephesus first. So Ephesus is up, comes straight across from Athens over into modern-day Turkey, and you'll see Ephesus, all right? They came to Ephesus, and Paul actually left Priscilla and Aquila there, and he's going to head for Syria, but again, not the direct route. He comes down to Caesarea, um, which is down in the bottom right. He actually goes to the Jerusalem to greet the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he finally ends up up in Antioch. He stays for a while there, and then he goes to Galatia and Phrygia, which is way up in the north there on the right, again, modern-day Turkey. So that's what happens between verse 11 and 24. And that sets the stage for this section because now Apollos arrives on the scene. He is from Alexandria. Look above the word Egypt. There's Alexandria. So he has now come from Alexandria up to Ephesus he is said to be, verse 24, an eloquent man and proficient in the Scriptures, according to passage read, mighty in the Scriptures by some uh, translations. Furthermore, he is described as one who had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So now like Priscilla and Aquila in Rome, He had been converted to be a follower of Jesus in Alexandria, away from the activities of the early church leaders that we have described in Acts. But curiously, he's described as being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, I have to tell you, I've always been a little confused about that. Um, How could he only be acquainted with the baptism of John and still be instructed in the way of the Lord? To consider an answer, um, and there's probably multiple answers, but to consider one possible answer, we need to put ourselves in the time and place of the day and remember what's happened along the way. So let's go back to the time that Jesus was, um, had died and was, uh, uh, well, when he was arrested. Because I want to go back for a moment to, to after Judas killed himself and then uh, Jesus has resurrected, died and resurrected, and the po- apostles are deciding that Judas needs to be replaced. They were in Jerusalem at this time, and it was before Pentecost. All right, so there was this period between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost. So what qualification did they put on the replacement of Judas? Tells us in Acts 1, 21 through 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of us must become a witness of us with, uh, with us of his resurrection. Right, so now the, the apostles are choosing somebody to replace Judas, and his requirement is he had to be there since the baptism of John to the day of the ascension. Now they choose Matthias. Okay? And I'm not telling you that Matthias is the one that went to Alexandria. There's nothing at all to suggest that. But what if somebody who had been with them since the baptism of John to the ascension goes over to Alexandria? Right? He would be able to talk about Jesus. He'd be able to talk about his death and resurrection. They would have come to all kinds of knowledge about that, but they have not been to Pentecost. They haven't heard about baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there they would be following Jesus. And it's not hard to imagine that some would search the Old Testament to see if it really could be true that this man was the Messiah. And with the work of the Holy Spirit, even if they weren't aware of it, it's not hard to imagine that they would come to saving faith, even though they only knew of the baptism of John. And I think that's one way to understand how Apollos arrives on the scene. And what does he do? He speaks out boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila hear him. They take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And undoubtedly, this means Apollos learns more of the work of the Holy Spirit that's been active in him already and of the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now Apollos heads over to Corinth. He's encouraged by the Ephesian church leaders to do so. They even write him a letter in advance. And it says that when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he, like Paul, debates with the Jews and uses the Old Testament scriptures to prove that this Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah. Now I want to think about two things today. First, what was it that Paul and Apollos could have been saying as they debated the Jews in the synagogue? And second, what lesson is there for us in understanding this? So, what could they have been saying as they debated? Well, you know, a lot of us who have been followers of Jesus for many years are aware of many Old Testament passages that are said to be messianic. They are said to refer to the Messiah to come. Messiah means anointed one. All the kings of Israel and Judah were anointed. You could say they were all messiahs of a a sort, but that's not what these passages are talking about. They're talking about the greater Messiah who is to come. Just yesterday in my devotional, I read Isaiah 11. I'll read just a few short verses. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by his eyes, nor make a decision by what he hears. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So there's many, many messianic passages like that. And we're all familiar with the Old Testament passages that are read during Advent, right? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we're all kind of used to that. And so we think, well, that's probably what Apollos and Paul were saying. And, and it could be. But I suspect many of us are not aware of how broad and deep the relationship is between the, the Old Testament and the New. How much it's true that one can, in the words of our passage today, demonstrate by the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ. Now, as an example of the depth of this relationship, I'm going to show you a book which I have not read all of, okay, but I've read parts of it, titled "The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses." It's by, by a guy named Vern Poythris. Um, this is not large print, okay? Um, this is really in-depth. And Dr. Poythras, who is a professor of New Testament at Westminster in Philadelphia, Um, Has written this brilliant book. If you ever get a chance to read some other things of Dr. Poitras, I'd recommend. He actually an interesting man. He graduated in mathematics at age 20 from Caltech, and he was the valedictorian. Got his PhD in mathematics at 24 from Harvard. And then on the side, he thought he would get a PhD in theology. I mean, what the heck, right? So, smart dude. Um, He's basically gone through the entire Old Testament the Mosaic law, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, everything, and related it to Christ and his redeeming work. It's really amazing. He states that the Old Testament law and tabernacle imagery express the righteousness and holiness of Christ. And this really shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said in Matthew 5, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to go through the whole book today, right? I'm not going to talk about everything in Poister's book today. But as background, I I want to just talk for a moment about some one aspect of it that he brings up because I think it's kind of interesting and fun. Let's think about the tabernacle, okay? Now, let me remind you what the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was a tent that was made according to specifications given to Moses during the Exodus. God's presence was found in the uh, relationship to the tabernacle. According to Exodus 33:11, God would meet with Moses face to face at the tabernacle. And when the Israelites moved during the Exodus, they would pack it all up. They had very careful rules about how to pack it up, and the only people who could carry it were the Levites. And different groups of Levites carried different parts. Very, very uh, detailed. The tabernacle was divided into two sections. There was one section that was 10 by 20 by 10, or 20 by 10 by 10 cubits. Um, that was called the holy place. And then the most holy place was a perfect cube, 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. So there was that tent. Surrounding it was these curtains all the way around that created a courtyard that would be 50 by 100 cubits. And while the people, at least certain people, could enter the courtyard, only priests could enter the holy place. And after the death of Moses, only the high priest could enter the holy, most holy place and then only once a year. So... How do we see Christ in the tabernacle? Well, of course, the book of Hebrews helps us out a little bit here. In Hebrews 9, we're told that Jesus has become the great high priest by his sacrifice. Now, instead of sacrifices of animals, which pointed toward Jesus, we have his sacrifice that is the final atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, instead of a high priest that enters the most holy place only once a year, we have Jesus, who is presently and eternally our high priest in the presence of God the Father. But there's actually more to that, more to this imagery. Poitras points out that the tabernacle represented the presence of God with his people. Now, we kind of take that for granted because we understand the, the Holy Spirit lives within us. But, you know, back then they didn't. They lived in tents. So it would have been pretty reassuring to think that God's presence is in this tent that is with us. And, And that wasn't limited. His presence wasn't limited to that tent, of course, but that represented the fact that he is with us. God's tent was covered with blue and gold. It would have been beautiful. It would have stood out among all the other tents of the nomadic um, Israelites as they were uh, coming through the Exodus. This beauty represented that God was saying he was majestic and beautiful. And we often sing of the beauty of Christ. And there were parts of the tabernacle that were off limits. The tabernacle then expresses the holiness and inaccessibility of God. And I've already said that a perfect sacrifice would be necessary for his people to be able to be in God's presence. So the tabernacle represented his presence. The tabernacle was a symbol of heaven. The curtains were royal blue, the color of heaven. There were cherubim, angels woven into the fabric. The Ten Commandments were in the ark of the most holy place. The ark was the shape of a footstool representing the throne room of God in heaven, but the space above the ark was empty. Why? Because you couldn't have an image of God according to the uh, Old Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments. But Jesus has seen the Father and has made him known to us. And he's now in the most holy place in heaven with the Father. And third, even the items in the tabernacle point to Jesus, according to Poitras. I won't go through them all, but let's just think about the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was in the holy place. When in the most holy place, it was in the holy place. It's described as being on the table and was to be before God at all times. What did that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, sharing a meal together was an act of friendship. It was a solemn responsibility of the host to serve and protect his guests during a meal. And although only the priest could eat the bread of presence, it symbolized an invitation to all the Jews to enjoy a meal with God and recognize that they they were under his provision and protection. Well, Jesus fulfills this symbolism. He supernaturally feeds the 5,000 with bread. He says he is the bread that has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he says, who eats of this bread will live forever. And he gives us the bread of the Lord's Supper, which he describes as real nourishment for our souls. Imagine what Paul and Apollos could have been saying to the Jewish communities about how Jesus is the Messiah. Now you might be thinking, good, that's great. But I wasn't Jewish before I came to Jesus. So what does that mean for me? Well, I'm going to give you a confidence and a challenge from this. If you're thinking, what good is all this for me to understand all this stuff that the Old Testament applies, I'm going to give you a confidence and a challenge. And there are really two aspects of this confidence. Even if you don't come out of a Hebrew background, even if you didn't get raised and steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures in the synagogue. The benefit of understanding that Jesus is so clearly seen in the Old Testament should not be lost on you. It should give believers all great confidence. It confirms what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God is not only seen in the words of the prophets, but also seen in the entire Mosaic law and the way in which it looked toward and was fulfilled by Jesus. And this should give us great confidence as followers of Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not some accident. It was not some late plan of God to rectify the failure of the law to make people right with God. It was his plan all along, and it was foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament. And not only that, Paul and Apollos were really only doing what Jesus did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You're probably familiar with this passage. I'm going to read a few excerpts and kind of paraphrase it as I go. Two of them were going the day that Jesus' resurrection was discovered to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles away. And as they were going along, they were talking about, of course, the events that had taken place. Jesus approached them and began to travel with them. They didn't recognize him, though. And he said, what are you talking about? And one of them said, are you kidding? Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem, didn't know what happened? I'm sure he he was sorry he said those words later. And Jesus said, what things? And Cleopas said, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, a great prophet, um, uh, how the chief priests and other rulers uh, sentenced him to death, crucified him, and we were hoping he would be the one to redeem Israel. But some women among us came and amazed us, and they said, angels said, he is alive, and the tomb was empty. And Jesus says to them, O oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They get to the village, they sit down for dinner. When Jesus blesses the food, they recognize him and then he disappears from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Paul and Apollos were doing what Jesus did as he walked with his disciples, pointing to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The result was that the disciples' heart burned and so should yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, then reading the Word, both Old Testament and New Testament, hearing it taught, reading books about the content of Scripture, all those things should make your heart burn. Maybe not every time, but much of the time. And that burning in your heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, confirming you and giving you confidence. So, Understanding that all of Jesus' work was the plan of God and having that confirmed to us as we recognized him in the Old Testament and the New Testament revelation gives us confidence. And that's a good thing because we have a challenge. And here I want to go back to last week. Harrison told us three things. He looked at Paul's interactions with the Athenian philosophers and he said we should be listening to the image of God before us. We should be affirming the image of God before you before us and we should be challenging the image of God before us and he noted that it was this third one that we are most hesitant about and he gave a few really good reasons for that as I read of Paul and Apollos and today especially about Apollos I think I find another reason I have to ask myself am I mighty in the scriptures am I fervent in the spirit can I teach accurately the things concerning Jesus? And my answer is no, I'm not. Now, that might surprise you. I'm standing up here. But I have six to eight weeks to prepare. All right? And when I do that, I think I can find a couple of things that are helpful, you know, to share with you or non-believers. But how well can I do it when I have less time to prepare? Perhaps when I only have the spur of the moment to consider what am I going to say to someone about Jesus. Now, I'm not asking you or me to memorize the whole Bible. But what I I would ask you to prepare to do, what I would ask you and me to prepare to do, is what Peter asks the followers in Jesus in 1 Peter 3. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Are you, am I, ready to make a defense to those who ask why we follow Jesus? If you want to challenge the image of God before you, like Paul and Apollos, then you need to be prepared. I would ask you to take some time this week to write one paragraph, to be able to cite two or three passages of Scripture that would explain why you believe in Jesus, why you follow him. And I know there's a lot more to that than one paragraph. But there is at least one paragraph. And if you and I are not prepared with at least one paragraph, a few sentences and a few passages of why we're followers of Jesus, we will never challenge those around us to follow Jesus either. I would ask you to take some time to do that this week. I will. We've moved through a lot today. Geographically, theologically, hopefully practically. The shadow of Jesus is all over the law of Moses, the Old Testament. This is what Paul and Apollos were debating when they confronted the Jews of their day. The reality of Jesus is presented to us in the New Testament, not the shadow. We have confidence because the Old Testament foreshadows the New. We have confirmation because the work of the Holy Spirit as we read and study the Old Testament and New Testament. And we have a challenge to be prepared to present and defend the hope that burns in our hearts. May we rise to that challenge. Amen.